Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Welcome to a very special episode of the Health Upgrade Podcast. We're here in person with JP Erico here in Florida, local, which is wonderful. Thanks so much for swinging by. I'm excited to be able to do this in person with you. Well, you certainly traveled farther than I did, and I appreciate you coming down to Florida. It's my pleasure. I'd never say no to coming down here. I'm very excited about today's topic. I've done a ton of reading. We've uh, talked a little bit about this topic, and we're talking today about something that most people wouldn't consider a topic that the vagus nerve or the nervous system in general is actually heavily involved in, and that is atherosclerosis. And so let's talk a little bit about the importance of this particular topic. It is one of the major causes for heart attacks, for strokes, which are two of the more common reasons for mortality morbidity within the North American population. And so today we're going to dig into the role of the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system, the vagus nerve in particular, in controlling or eliminating atherosclerosis. Absolutely. And let's begin by talking about what atherosclerosis yes. is. Atherosclerosis is a process that occurs in many, many people. And it includes the immune system responding to damage of the endothelial lining. And as a result of that recruitment of, of inflammatory cells, there is a, an enlargement of the tissue that sits beneath the endothelial lining that ultimately occludes the, the artery or vessel. And with calcification, ultimately results in the hardening of that artery and can ultimately be the site where clots occur and clots can break off. And that can lead to downstream effects that are extremely acutely damaging and, and can, be, can be lethal. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we know that the rates of heart disease, stroke are exorbitant through North American populations, no question, and growing everywhere else in the world. And so this is one of the major reasons for mortality and morbidity throughout the entire planet. And so understanding how these plaques form, understanding the process by which the pathology actually begins is, is really important to understanding what we can then potentially do about it. So why don't we dig in there? Yeah, and how the nervous system is involved, because yes. it's not so clear, obviously, how the, how the nervous system would be involved. But basically, the purpose of the vasculature is to transport, or one of the purposes is to transport materials around the body in an efficient way. And one of the things that gets transported around so that cells in various parts of your body that need things um, get it, one of the things is, is cholesterol. Cholesterol is critically important for the production of hormones, production of signaling molecules, structural uses, and it's carried in part by uh, lipids like LDL. So LDL gets a bad name, but it is something that is important for us. You can't have none of it. So what happens is that things that are in the bloodstream have to get out of it. It usually is transported through the wall of the, of the vessel into the tissue beneath. One of the things that gets transported is LDL. When LDL is transported in high quantities, especially through an area where there's damage to the endothelial wall, that leads to a heightened level of inflammatory activity. And the tissue resident macrophages will, and the tissue that's present, will respond in a way that releases reactive oxygen species and other things that will have an effect on the LDL that's present in that, what's called the intima. It's the layer right beneath the endothelial lining. And so in that layer that sits right beneath the, the vessel or right inside the vessel, you have a level of, of reactive oxygen species that 
oxidize the LDL into a different chemical form. And that then becomes immunogenic in a, in a, in a more robust way. And it ultimately results in cells being recruited, immune cells recruiting from the bloodstream and and into the tissue. And so you have this buildup of locally of immune cells that are active, that are causing more of this LDL to be oxidized and ultimately trying to absorb it or engulf it. And you end up with macrophages that are, and other tissues, there's actually uh, smooth muscle tissue also, and those cells start to become filled up with this oxidized LDL. And they, they actually have a name for it because it looks like a foamy kind of substance inside the cell. These are your foam cells. Unfortunately, ultimately, these cells will break apart. So they, they can't stand that level of foaminess for too long and they break apart. And that then just leads to more inflammation. And ultimately, you have this big clump of a mess. Basically, it's the insides of macrophages and smooth muscle cells and foamy LDL. And the body ultimately wants to just encapsulate it. And that leads to the calcification. And so this process that's ongoing ultimately leads to the narrowing of the arteries and the calcification is the hardening of the arteries. And the surface of this becomes a place in which smooth laminar flow of the bloodstream is is disrupted. There's still presumably still space for the, for blood to travel, but because it's it's necked down, it has to move faster, and that shear forces that are located are present there, activate platelets and activate clotting function. And that clotting function then can lead to clots forming and breaking off, and as we said before, to things that can be quite acutely lethal. I like to use analogies to kind of understand what this means. And so for me, the one that sticks out here with regards to the breakdown of the lining of the blood vessel is the idea of the creation of a pothole on the road, right? We're, we're driving along and all of a sudden we hit this pothole. And that pothole was created by over and over repetitive motion by cars that on an area of the road that was not smooth, not clean, and there were other environmental factors that might have created that that trigger. So weather changes, rain, snow, whatever it happens to be, heat as well. And so what happens is over time that road is going to tear away a little bit and all of a sudden we, we've gotten a big chunk taken away and there's a pothole on the road. And that's going to decrease the flow of the blood or in this particular case, the flow of cars across the road. And that's going to affect challenges there. Now, atherosclerosis is almost like the the workers coming in to fix up that pothole, but not doing a good job of it or not doing it in a controlled way. And so they have this big hump that's created or it's not flat and comfortable like it should be. And that's where the foam cells start to create that increased size or, or, or disrupt the flow a little bit more. And so it can break off even further. And that break off can go and create other challenges in other places. So it really comes down to, in my opinion, the, if, how the repair process is, is managed. So the breakdown is, is one piece. Obviously, the production of these foam cells is a huge piece as well. And then how the repair system is occurring so that these plaques don't end up going and blocking smaller blood vessels down the road. Yeah, and that's where the nervous system comes into play. Because in that description of how the atherosclerotic plaque gets formed, what we were talking about was the recruitment of immune cells to that location. So monocytes that are traveling through the bloodstream are being recruited and captured and brought into this this environment and become macrophages and then 
the process continues. One of the things that activates that release of the monocytes and the presence of those monocytes in the bloodstream to begin with can be inflammation. And so one of the things that's been discovered over the last 15 or 20 years is that it's not simply cholesterol and the presence of high levels of LDLs that are the reason why these these things form. That there's actually an inflammatory process that doesn't have to be local. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly the local inflammation is, is what's recruiting them to that specific location, but the presence of these activated monocytes in the bloodstream is a function of systemic inflammation, which can be measured with things like C-reactive protein and other things. And so it turns out that there's a, there's a role for the immune system, uh, for the autonomic nervous system and the immune system working in concert, I won't say to our benefit, but it's typically sympathetic activation. So it's the activation of your sympathetic nervous system that causes monocytes to be recruited, to be formed and to be released into the bloodstream, either from the blood-forming tissue or from the spleen. And the release of those cells into the bloodstream leads to this acceleration of this feedback loop that we were talking about, where more oxidized LDL leads to more activated immune cells, leading to more signaling, causing more monocytes to arrive. And this, this feedback loop that just you know ultimately results in damage. Mm-hmm. So what we want to do is we want to use the autonomic nervous system to tamp down that signaling to upregulate inflammation. Now, within the medical community, we're already considering this as a target for therapy. I mean, people use beta blockers, for example. Beta blockers are obviously something, a medication that's been used to treat high blood pressure, but it's also been recognized in the presence of atherosclerosis to alter the signaling within the sympathetic nervous system and reduce the upregulation of inflammation. And then separately, targeting the inflammation directly, there are now, there's now recognition that drugs like statin drugs that have been so remarkable in reducing cholesterol levels, we're finding that perhaps the real mechanism or an important part of their mechanism is that they're anti-inflammatory also. And now whether that anti-inflammatory activity comes from simply reducing the, the high levels of LDLs or does it have a separate pathway that is purely anti-inflammatory and it's simply additive? Still still being studied and, and looking forward to good answers there, but there's other ways to reduce inflammation. Certainly anti-IL-1 drugs are being investigated and other drugs that reduce the levels of those inflammatory cytokines are showing promise for reducing atherosclerosis. That's great. And and having these therapies, no question, it's so important that we're able to address the inflammation when it does occur in those acute circumstances or as, as a preventative mechanism when the levels are found to be high. From a functional perspective, when we look at inflammation, we're always looking at the source of it. We're looking for where it's coming from as well. So in a more preventative, more kind of long-term solution type of idea, the idea from a functional perspective is to look at the gut in particular being the source of a lot of that inflammation to begin with. And one of the main triggers here in the production of an inflammatory response internally is lipopolysaccharide, which is bacterial endotoxin that's entering the body. And it and generally enters the body via the gut, through the gut lining, through what we know now as a leaky gut. This can happen due to dysbiosis, due to excessive bacterial levels or imbalanced bacterial levels. 
even the presence of parasites or yeast can activate a leaky gut that'll allow the normal levels of LPS to come in and actually activate that immune response as well, leading to an inflammatory reaction. And so this is just one of the other sources that we look at more from a functional medicine, functional health perspective is to address where that inflammation is then coming from. So yes, we've got the medical side, which is a really important, the pharmaceutical therapeutic side, which is huge, but we also need to look at where it's coming from. So in conjunction, they can actually do a really good job together. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the gut is, a, is an incredibly important part of maintaining a good balance within your immune system and preventing inflammation. There are other things that we can do also that go to some of the things, topics we've talked about previously on previous podcasts about the Western culture, Western lifestyle, reducing stress. I think generally people are now becoming aware that a high stress lifestyle is unfortunately conducive to some of these negative things happening, atherosclerosis, hypertension, and, and other really damaging physical consequences of a high stress lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And that isn't just work stress or emotional stress. It's also just staying up too late, spending too much time, you know, focused on screens, too much screen time, etc. And so dietary changes can certainly be part of it. But I think I think you have to have a lifestyle that is a little bit different from what we're all being driven to. So I think if we bring this sort of back to how the autonomic nervous system roles plays into this, all of those things that that leaky gut, stressful lifestyle, lack of exercise, all of those things are activators of the sympathetic nervous system. And as we said earlier, the sympathetic nervous system and inflammation drives the creation of monocytes and activation of those monocytes to move into the bloodstream and ultimately to move into the tissue and the endothelial lining and through the endothelial lining into the intima where that atherosclerosis is occurring. So what we need to do is reduce the inflammatory triggers, but also are there ways for us to modulate the sympathetic nervous system and and activate, for for example, the parasympathetic nervous system to have that anti-inflammatory effect? And it turns out that, and we've discussed this before, there is this pathway that has been discovered about 20 years ago called the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. And so it's probably worth spending a little bit of time talking about what that is and how that could then have a role in preventing atherosclerosis or at least inhibiting the process. So the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway is related to the parasympathetic Mm -hmm. and the vagus nerve. It turns out that stimulating the vagus nerve creates or or triggers a, a neurologic reflex that involves the immune system. And ultimately, without going into the gory details of it, the release of acetylcholine binds to a a receptor called the alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, which is expressed on many innate immune cells, other cells like platelets. It's actually on smooth muscle cells. It's It's on a lot of different cells in the body. And when it's activated, it has the effect of reducing inflammation, especially on monocytes and macrophages. So to the extent that macrophages and monocytes are involved in this process, and clearly they are, reducing that pro inflammatory or inhibiting that pro-inflammatory posture of these cells is important and can have the the result of inhibiting the, the development of the atherosclerotic plaque. I think the most important piece of the puzzle here is understanding that that receptor is so important in the cascade of creating that anti-inflammatory pathway. And the receptor is this alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, meaning that it's activated both by nicotine and choline, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Mm -hmm. But 
there's different ways that the acetylcholine gets to that receptor to activate it. The most common one that we are aware of that we're talking about most, most commonly with the parasympathetic nervous system via the vagus nerve is physically the synaptic endpoints of the vagus nerve simply releasing acetylcholine, which is its primary neurotransmitter, only neurotransmitter, at local areas. This happens in the gut, this happens in the lungs and the heart. Wherever the vagus nerve has an endpoint, it'll send out acetylcholine directly. What's important to note here is that the vagus nerve goes to many places, but it can't go everywhere. And so my thought process here is that the branch of the vagus nerve that goes to the celiac ganglion that then activates the splenic nerve we're releasing acetylcholine at the ganglion itself. The splenic nerve then goes to the spleen and activates or releases norepinephrine. Mm -hmm. And with norepinephrine, it activates the T cells, CD4 plus T cells. Those cells then in circulation will send out acetylcholine. And so it's a secondary source of the acetylcholine to be released having an effect on the macrophages and on the other cells where this nicotinic acetylcholine receptor is present to have that anti-inflammatory effect. Absolutely. This is part of the complexity of the system, but it also shows the robustness of it because it does, it's a reflex, and this immune reflex involves both the vagus nerve releasing acetylcholine in the distal locations that you've talked about. But in the spleen, which is an incredibly important immune organ, there is no innervation of the parasympathetic. So the vagus does not directly touch the spleen. What it does through what you were saying is it activates a sympathetic nerve, which is the splenic nerve, which is, you know, comes down from through the sympathetics, through the greater splanchnic nerve. And at the celiac ganglion, which is where the splanchnic nerve and the vagus nerve meet, activation of the vagus nerve will cause the splenic nerve to ultimately, in the spleen, release norepinephrine. And as you mentioned, there are a group of cells called CHAT cells. These are nascent T cells that have beta receptors on them, beta 2 receptors. And that when the norepinephrine from the splenic nerve is released, those CHAT cells sort of act like an interneuron, in mm -hmm. fact, because they're receiving, they're part of the immune system, but they are receiving a neurotransmitter in norepinephrine, and then they release acetylcholine. And that acetylcholine is what's binding to the alpha-7 nicotinic receptors and the macrophages that are tissue resident in the spleen, as well as monocytes that are circulating, and down-regulates their, their inflammatory posture. You mentioned something, and it sparked a thought in my mind. You mentioned that it's a reflex. And this is an important point, I think, because a lot of people don't realize that reflexes can be decreased or increased. And that's based on our measurements, right? Even if we're just doing simple knee-jerk reflex. We, we test for it. We're hoping that it's a 2+, plus, which is a good, comfortable reflex. If it's slow, we're looking at it being a 1+, plus, and if it's non-existent, it's a 0. We're scoring it, basically, on, on the intensity of that reflex. If it's too hard, too fast, then it goes into a 3 or a 4+, plus, and that's a sign of an upper motor neuron lesion. What we're looking at here is the effectiveness of that reflex to work. And so when it comes down to the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway being a reflex, then we need to have the, the function of the vagus nerve being optimized to allow for that reflex to work effectively. When the vagus nerve is not working well, we are not able to activate that reflex because the acetylcholine release is going to be limited. And that's really important because then we can't activate that system. Absolutely. There are certainly supplements that people can take that will help to, in, in general, nerve health, 
supplements will affect the vagus nerve the same way they would affect any other nerves. And it's it's really important to maintain vagus nerve health. Mm-hmm. One really important way, and it gets back to what I know you brought up, which is gut health. There's some research to suggest that the vagus nerve doesn't work optimally when the endothelial tissue in the in the gut is damaged or otherwise not functioning properly, because of course a lot of the of the fibers of the vagus nerve actually originate in the gut and the gut, the enteric nervous system and the interaction between the gut brain and the the central nervous system is critically important. That's what the vagus nerve is. So having the gut in a healthy state is really important for vagal health and for parasympathetic health. But again, that reflex that's going through the system is something that's naturally present. Mm -hmm. There's some debate within the literature and within the the scientific community as to whether or not it's the primary actor when we have high levels of inflammation that are present and your body needs to tamp that down. Obviously, we have other mechanisms, the HPA axis and otherwise, and glucocorticoids that are in circulation. But being able to regulate inflammation on a literally second-by-second basis is something that does require the nervous system to function properly, and that's one of the things that the vagus nerve is doing. When the vagus nerve is not functioning properly or it's not being activated sufficiently, higher levels of inflammation will be present in the body because that reflex is being inhibited. So to your point, if you're looking at the knee-jerk reflex and you're only measuring one, well, that could mean in the parallel with the with the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway that your systemic levels of inflammatory cytokines and, and and your inflammatory posture is just higher and over time that can be damaging yeah and and so it's just a very simple analogy to understand what we're looking at here when it comes down to that actual vagus nerve activation and so I think, why don't we take a little practical break here and talk about like practical ways to ensure that vagus nerve is functioning well. You mentioned stress, and I just quickly wanted to touch on the different types of stress that can affect this, that can create these challenges. You mentioned many practical, specific reasons, but I like to break it down to four particular sources of stress. We've got the emotional stress, which is that day-to-day stress, finances, relationships, stuff that's going on day to day, the guy who cut you off in traffic, all of those things. Those are the emotional stressors that we have a bit of control over, but often get in the way. And these are ones that we have the most control over, I believe, when it comes to understanding the emotional side of things. There's psychological stressors, which you could say, well, how are they any different from an emotional? I like to look at psychological stressors as things that happened in the past, traumatic incidents, traumatic events that kind of in a crude way, scuffed the lenses through which you see the world. This is going to happen because that happened and you create this mindset response because of it. And so you go into a stressful state when something similar occurs, something along those lines. Exactly. So that's where the psychological stress is. We've got physical stress, which is physical literally means like movement and body function stress from a musculoskeletal perspective sedentary lifestyles, not moving enough, moving too much in some cases as well can be a stressor. So this is one that we can look at. And then on the last one is biochemical stress. And biochemical stress, we're looking at the gut-brain axis. We're looking at dysbiosis. We're looking at environmental toxins, heavy metals, things that can come in and actually create a negative response internally through a biochemical cascade. And so these are the other things that we have a bit of, of control over because we we choose what we eat. We choose what comes into our environment around us most of the time. There might be some environmental chemicals that we don't know about, but these are essentially the four sources of the stressors that can trigger 
parasympathetic system and vagus nerve dysfunction and upregulate that SNS response, the sympathetic nervous system response, activating this very inflammatory cascade. Yeah, and I think it's important also to recognize the the temporal component of this. Short-term stresses are actually a good thing. I mean, we need stress in our lives in order to heal bones. I mean, one of the things that we talk about when in the orthopedics industry is a bone's not going to heal unless you put some pressure on it. That's triggering the activity that will heal the bone. But long-term stress. So what we're really talking about is chronic exposure to toxins, chronic exposure to bad diet, chronically not exercising. There's nothing wrong with running a marathon. A marathon is damaging and I've, I've done a few myself and I can tell you that's a long way. But it's a good thing for you. What I think is is not good is chronically overstressing your system. Um, you you get damage, and, and that damage doesn't have time to heal. So you need a balance between that sympathetic activation, which is short term, that is you know participating in a race, participating in a game, participating at work in a hard project, but then having that rest, digest, and restore and recover mode that is dominated by the parasympathetic. And and the question for all of us is, what do our bodies need in order to balance that? Is it is it four hours a day? Is it eight hours a day? Is it 16 hours a day of sympathetic activation? Is it, you know, 20, 16, or only four hours of, uh, of parasympathetic activation? My suspicion is that because we evolved as species in an environment that was very different from what we're in right now and our needs and the demands on our lives were very different. I think there's there's value in thinking about what would our lives have been like if we had not been, you know, subject to the Western lifestyle, modern lifestyle of today. And what would it have looked like in the past? And, and frankly, I think in the past, we would have had a lot more time of rest, digest and restore and recover than we have of stress. Certainly there were stresses in, you know, caveman times, but those stresses were generally short-lived. We have to sort of think about how that translates into today's modern world. I'm really glad you mentioned recover. And I have I have this internal thing that I want to change just the way we talk about the parasympathetic nervous system and the vagus nerve from being the rest and digest system to the rest, digest, recover. And we want to add restore as well to this because it does way more than just simply put you in a rest or digest state. It, it is so heavily involved in that recovery process, in the repair process. And it does so through this anti-inflammatory cascade, through this shift of macrophage activity. And so let's get back into the science a little Mm -hmm. bit on how the vagus nerve activation can affect macrophage activity, particularly in an atherosclerotic plaque or or in that cascade. Well, I mean, the goal, and we talked about this earlier, the goal is to reduce the activation of macrophages and to make certain macrophages are an incredibly important cell in our bodies. In fact, We've talked about it in the context of the brain that the the resident macrophage, if we call it, is really a microglial cell in the central nervous system. It is present within seven days of of conception. There are immune cells that are present in the growing brain and that they guide and control all of the development of the brain from the vascularization to the myelination to what cells live and die, what connections are made, what connections remain. I mean, a lot of those connection changes are are activity and sensory dependent. So it's the way that our immune system controls the brain development, takes inputs from our experiences, et cetera. So 
it's not uh, it's not pre-programmed. We're not going to end up exactly the same as one another. There's a level to which that change is is individualized by our own experiences. But the same thing is occurring in our in our organs. There's the, the mac- resident macrophages are present very early in that tissue that's growing, and they have certain roles that are very specific for that time. During organ development, there are, and it includes in the brain and the liver and the lungs and, and kidneys and the heart, those resident macrophages have roles that may appear at some level to be something like inflammatory because there's a lot of pruning and cutting back of tissue that shouldn't be growing but is growing. And so what we need is to understand that during that phase, there's productive inflammation. I don't want to call it, it's not really a pro-inflammatory state. It's still pro-developmental state, but it has certain ways of behaving that are eerily similar to to pro-inflammatory. Then after the organs have developed and we've gotten through our growth phase and we're in adulthood, those macrophages, which by the way, are around for life, those cells last from gestation all the way through old age. Those cells remain and they have sort of a homeostatic um, maintenance function. Their role really is to remain in a non-inflammatory state, just sort of housekeeping, doing, doing some basic tasks that we need them to do. What happens in old age is that those macrophages have been insulted enough over just normal life that they become primed and they're, they're ready for, to be more, more damaging. And if there's genetic problems or if that priming has, has become too extreme, they sometimes in old age will revert to that excessive pruning that is necessary in development but isn't really appropriate for adulthood. And so they start to revert back to a damaging role, which may or may not look exactly like inflammation, but still has a damaging effect that's reminiscent of that. And so you sort of, we, we have this expression that, you know, old age is a second childhood. Unfortunately, our macrophages sort of took that seriously. And in old age, as a result of a life of, you know, just a normal life and the, and the challenges and damage that occurs, they sometimes and not always, but sometimes revert back to a posture that's reminiscent of development and do damage. And part of that damage can be in the central nervous system. We've talked about degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening or can happen there. But that can happen in your other organs. There can be fibrosis in the liver. There can be kidney damage. There can be, in the, in the context of the vasculature, atherosclerosis. If the macrophages are in a quiescent state, and relaxed and not primed, then maybe the presence of high levels of LDLs is is ignored. It's not something that it reacts to. But at some point, if they're prone to it, they will begin to react and that feed forward process can, can begin. And to the extent that modulating the autonomic nervous system can have the effect of reducing that inflammation and reducing that priming into that state that's what we're hoping that people will be able to access for themselves. And whether that's doing things like exercise or, you know, there are, there are things that you can do, behaviors and, and activities that will activate your vagus nerve, your parasympathetic. Those are wonderful things to do. There are some easy ways of doing it, which involve new technologies, whether they be implantable or non-invasive. There's ways of activating the vagus nerve. 
to the extent that we can activate the vagus nerve and activate that anti-inflammatory process, by and large, that's a very good thing um, across a number of different conditions, including potentially in preventing atherosclerosis. Yeah, this is really important because now we have practical advice. And we know that this whole process is multifactorial. We know that LDL plays a role. We know that LPS potentially is playing a role that activates the LDL. We know that the presence of and the activation of these nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, the alpha-7s in particular, is heavily involved in controlling this and limiting it. And when it's not activated enough or when the vagal tone is, is a little poorer than we want it to be, if it's that one plus level, then it's not going to create that response that we need and not allow us to get into that recovery state as readily as we can. And so practically, the things that we can do include these multifactorial lifestyle supportive type of things, eating a healthier, cleaner diet, avoiding processed foods, sugars, heavily processed omega-6 oils, things like that. We want to eliminate the things that, that are going to create these challenges. We really want to be very careful with movement and making sure that we are moving enough not sitting on our butts for 10, 12 hours a day. And so getting up and moving around and making sure that our, our muscles are using the sugars that are present in our bloodstream, that they are creating energy and activating the muscle cells effectively. And so movement is key. And from the emotional and psychological sides, we can look at the deep breathing exercises. We can look at the humming, the chanting, the gargling, the things that we know are going to be vagus nerve activating and work on managing that emotional response so it doesn't trigger a cascade of other inflammatory sympathetic type of events. And so in a very practical sense, supporting atherosclerosis or eliminating the, the risk of it going off, breaking off and creating a challenge like an MI or a stroke is heavily involved in the anti-inflammatory lifestyle, not just the anti-inflammatory response. That said, when cases might be severe enough to require it, pharmaceuticals are are an option, but we also have the idea of vagus nerve stimulation through potentially non-invasive or invasive methods as well. Yeah, and, and I don't want to leave people with the assumption or the, the belief that the only way to live a healthy lifestyle is to divorce yourself from all the Western comforts. I mean, you know, we all like fast food. It's designed that we will like it. <laughs> we, we like the comforts of not having to walk places. We like to, you know, get into a car and sit and drive somewhere. In some cases, it's just not practical to not drive or fly. We love television. It's, it's a certainly a source of entertainment and, and information. And screens provide us with incredible advances in, in knowledge acquisition. And, you know, I sort of now have an external hippocampus, so I don't have to remember everything. I can look it up. But to the extent that you don't want to divorce yourself from that and, and go back to eating, you know, seeds and nuts and walking everywhere and, and hunting and, hunting and, <laughs> and you know, turning, out, turning off the, the candles when yes. you go to bed at night at eight o'clock, to the extent that you don't want to do that, there are hacks, if you will, biohacks, some of which are, you mentioned things like gargling and Gregorian chants and yoga breathing techniques, et cetera, that people can do. But to the extent that you don't want to do those, mm -hmm. one of the benefits of modern society is that we understand now how to do it either outside or inside the body by, by stimulating the vagus nerve electrically or otherwise. I absolutely love that you said that. When it comes down to atherosclerosis in particular, what are the, the top three things that we can do to reduce our risk of, of a severe atherosclerotic plaque? Well, I think the first thing is a better diet. The second thing is reduce the stress in your life. 
And I think the third thing is really try to minimize the damage to that endothelial lining to begin with. And, and we didn't talk about that, but the causes of the, that damage can be hypertension. It can be uh, toxins. It can be, you know, injury can cause it as well. But usually injuries resolve themselves without this. So to the extent that you can do things that are good for your vascular health, which really is no different from from really, frankly, the endothelial lining of your gut. Yeah. So to the extent that you fix one, you're going to fix the other. I think all of that's important. Getting good sleep is yeah. always important. You know, I hearken back to a book that I read a long time ago by the now late author Michael Crichton, you know, famous for Jurassic Park and a few other great stories. I think he actually was the brains behind the original TV show ER. He was, yeah. You know, one of the things, one of the only nonfiction books he ever wrote was a book that chronicled his experiences at Mass General mm-hmm. when he was a student. Most people don't know that he went to medical school. He was a, he was a medical doctor. And he talked in that book about how he used to go and ask patients why they were there. You know, a person who had had, heart atta- had had a heart attack or a stroke, what got you here? And he had been expecting them to say, well, I didn't eat the right foods or, you know, I did, I did this, that and the other thing medically or chemically wrong to themselves. And yet what invariably he found was that people would say, something stressful had happened in their lives or that they were working too hard or they had done things that were emotional. And so to the extent that we can try to get our emotional lives and our stress levels balanced, I think that's probably the most important. You know, we're social creatures. And unfortunately, Western society has done a tremendous amount to isolate us. We spend a lot of time only interacting with people through text messages and screen time. You know, I'm I'm concerned about my own children and the fact that they spend an inordinate amount of time communicating with one another, not talking on the phone the way I did as a kid or or getting out in front of one another and talking eye to, you know, face eye to eye and face to face, but they do it through a screen and I, you know, not only do I find that their interactions tend to be a lot harsher as a result, but they're losing the ability to, to recognize the emotional impact that they have on one another. And as a result, the emotional impact that other people have on them. You know, just like many parents, I have uh, on occasion had to take the phones away from my kids. And, you know, my wife and I will tell you that when we do that, they revert back to a, a much more friendly, interactive, socially adjusted state. So I, I believe it's reversible. But, you know, with that, I, I understand the importance of cell phones and, and screen time. I, we've talked about that many times, my wife and I. But to the extent that you can get away from it and turn it off and be with your families and friends, that's really important. And I, I just can't emphasize the importance of that enough. Even more important than eating right, and maybe, maybe as important as exercising, I would say that's critical. I think that's such an important point. And I want to bring up a couple of practical strategies here. I think my kids aren't teenagers yet, so I don't have to worry about the cell phone thing quite yet. But I imagine that, and I have some friends that that do this, but their screen-free time and screen-free zones, essentially the dinner table would be a screen-free zone. No cell phones, no laptops, no iPads, whatever it is. None of that at the dinner table. You're sitting with your family and you're eating your dinner. And that's a secure, safe space 
for people to sit and interact with one another. Something along those lines could be a great practical tool here. And I think the key to all of this, like we wouldn't be able to record this or have been in touch without that technology, without mm-hmm. the cell phones, without the laptops, without the camera and the light and all the things that we're doing. None of this is really possible. So the key here is balance. I think really what we need to take away is this 80-20 rule. If we can be present and good at what we're doing 80% of the time and allow ourselves 20% of the time to kind of go off and be a little bit more rebellious and do the things that we know we're not theoretically supposed to do, but we can come back and put ourselves into that recovery zone more often than not, then we're able to recover more readily. That balance is, in my opinion, the absolute key to making this work well. Yeah, wait till you have teenagers. <laughs> Getting that balance is difficult. But I, you know, and I don't want to sound like technology is bad because I certainly am not. I'm an engineer by training. I love technology. But I'll tell you, my wife and I talk about the fact that cell phones are things that people who don't really want them should have them. And anybody who really, really, really wants one shouldn't have one. <laughs> but getting back to the science, I think technology has the ability to drive a dopaminergic versus a serotonergic response. And I think that's something that they're they're built around. I mean, there's a lot of research that suggests that. There's a lot of exposés that have been written about the fact that even within these companies that develop these things, they're focused on a dopaminergic response as opposed to a serotonergic response. And just to explain what I mean by the difference there, it's the difference between pleasure and happiness. Pleasure is something that you get from the outside. Happiness is something you have on the inside. Mm-hmm. Happiness really means contentment. And it means I don't need anything. Pleasure means I need something in order to be able to reach this state from the outside. Something gives me pleasure. I don't have pleasure inside me. I have it from somebody else or something else giving it to me. Happiness is something that I have and I can give it to other people simply by being it. I can Being around happy people makes you happy. Being around happy people doesn't give you pleasure. It makes you happy because Contentment breeds contentment. And so, again, getting back to what are the things that we can do to reduce the risk of hypertension, reduce the risk of atherosclerosis, and frankly, reduce inflammation overall. And it's been shown. Be socially engaged. We know that in old age, one of the things that prevents dementia is being intellectually active and being socially active. We know that people who live alone are at much higher risk of dying earlier. And it's not simply because there's not protections there. It's because there's not a social network that protects people. So be engaged in your social network. Be engaged with other people face-to-face, not through not through screens as much as possible. Talk to people on the phone versus texting them. Engage in other people's lives. Have them engaged in your life. And it will be a better existence and a healthier one. You couldn't have said it better. And I just want to mention there's a couple books that I think would be really interesting to people that want to dig a little bit further into this dopamine response to social media and and to the use of devices. A gentleman by the name of Nir Eyal wrote a book called Hooked. All of the tech companies have basically taken that and created their dopaminergic responses to how to keep people hooked to their apps. And then he realized what he had done and he wrote Indistractables, teaching people how to not get into that state and get away from that dopamine response that we need our our tech devices with us all the time and to avoid that dopamine response. So I really would recommend for anybody who feels like they might have an issue here, Indistractable by Nir Eyal. Wonderful, wonderful book. Really, really great practical resource on that. I think many of the people who work in those companies have read that book because word is on the street that a lot of them won't allow their own children to have phones and they won't allow their children to play with apps and things like that because they understand how they're designed. 
Again, I'm not somebody who's opposed to technology, but at the same time, we just have to be careful. Yeah. Just have to be careful. As you said, it's the 80-20 rule. You know, just everything in moderation. I think we'll all get there if we exercise a little bit, spend some time with family, focus on a good diet, and maybe a little vagus nerve stimulation, whether it be by gargling or using a device, it all will work. I love it. This is a great episode. I think this was a great place to end our conversation today as well. So thank you so much for joining me here physically today. This is very exciting Happy for us. Happy to do it. It was great. It was great. <laughs> we, we are now in person talking about doing what we talk about doing all the time rather than being on Zoom. So this is wonderful. So thank you all for joining today on this wonderful episode of the Health Upgrade Podcast. And look out for great new content coming up. We've got a ton of wonderful speakers and guests lined up. And we're really excited to share this information that's practical and useful with all of you and with your patients, your loved ones, please share this episode with anyone that you feel could use this information and could benefit from it. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.